0: Welcome to WP Tonic episode 163. Today, our guest is Philip Morgan. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Liquid Web. While Liquid Web has best been known as a managed hosting company with tons of options, it's also managed WordPress for mission critical sites. Improved performance, maximized uptime, and incredible support, Liquid Web is the partner that you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iThemes Sync integrated into their management portal, allowing them to update several sites with a single touch. If you sign up today and use the discount code WPtonic33, for the next six months so visit liquidweb.com wordpress to get started and with that the show philip for those of you that that don't know who you are tell us a little bit about yourself and uh what you're best known for
1: well my name is philip morgan and i help uh self-employed software developers transition from some kind of generalist way of uh, marketing themselves primarily into a specialist market position where they can uh, almost every time command higher rates or charge the same and work less or stop stressing so much about where the next project's going to come from. I live in Sebastopol, California. Really love it here. And um, that, that's about the shortest intro I can give. Happy to go into more detail if you want, but that's, that's the TLDR.
0: There you go also want to introduce my co-host, Jonathan. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a support maintenance company for business owners and for designers or anybody in the WordPress community that's looking for a truly trusted partner.
0: Excellent. And I'm John Locke. I run a uh, WordPress consultancy, Lockdown Design, and specifically... I help blue-collar businesses with their local SEO. Uh, first thing I, I want to mention, Philip, is is you have an excellent book called The Positioning Manual for Technical uh, Agencies. And, and one of the things that, that you talk about is how uh, a lot of these web design, web development firms don't have a specific focus. Um, they're kind of generalist shops and and talk uh just for a second about why being a generalist is is so hard when it comes to lead generation
1: i always have to start with the caveat that uh, i was a generalist for five years and um pretty much everybody i know who has started working for themselves doing software development or wordpress work or almost any kind of freelancing in fact um approaches it as a generalist so uh, throughout the rest of this time i'm going to say really mean and nasty things about generalists. yeah bring it but i just want to start with the caveat that i was one and um and i think actually for some people that that's the way to go probably but i find that most generalists myself included get to a point where finding clients is a real struggle and they feel like the the solution is to apply more hustle. Like maybe you get um, work through job sites and if you, at a certain point you start to either not get enough work, you maybe have like the the last dry spell that you you can tolerate, right? You know, the last two months dry spell and you just kind of are like, screw this, something's got to change. Or um, you hit a rate ceiling is uh, something that happens or in some cases, this is the worst, you, you start hearing more and more from people that you're submitting proposals to. Um somebody else quoted this for half the price. Why should we go with you? That kind of thing starts happening as as a generalist. And it's super frustrating. And I think if you go to, you know, websites where people are like complaining about their clients or talking about how hard it is to be a freelancer, I think a lot of their frustrations come from from that that set of problems. And so um, your question was, why does a, a generalist have problems attracting leads? Because I'll just elaborate that on and say that I think if most frustrated freelancers had a lot of leads coming in and they could cherry pick the ones that suited them, a lot of their frustrations would go away. They would feel like Oh, I don't have to take this client that I knew in the first place was going to be a giant pain to work with. Like everybody, I, I, I used to have this happen. I would have a client and, and it would not work out well. And I'd get super frustrated and I would go back and ask myself, did I see that coming? Did I know that they were going to be a pain to work with. And the answer was almost always, yes. Like my intuition just told me, or they gave some sign that they weren't going to be a, a pleasure to work with. So, if we all had uh, like an infinite number of leads coming in or as many as we could possibly handle and we could just cherry pick the good ones. I think most of us would be a lot happier with our work. So again, your question, why don't generalists have a flood of leads coming in? And it's because they're, they don't stand out from any other generalists. They they look homogenous. One of the things I encourage people to do um if, is go to the site clutch.co, clutch.co. Have you guys seen that? It's like a directory of, uh, of software development shops. And uh, look at any category there. Pick the top 10 uh, shops in any category and just kind of quickly flip through the websites, those top 10 uh, shops, and they will blend together into this blob of sameness, of, you know, homogeneity. And you'll be like, wow, I I just, they are all saying the same things about themselves. They're all saying they have a great process. They're all saying they have great people. They're all saying that they're super sharp and super skilled and super passionate about what they do. But none of those things are really a compelling reason for a client. I think to pick one of those over the other unless there's a referral or something like that. So um, I guess the short answer to your question, John, is um, there's just no compelling reason for somebody to choose one generalist over another unless you have a personal relationship with them or you were referred to them, which I think is why most generalist developers get the vast majority of their work through referrals and um, like person-to-person networking, or at least that's been my experience.
0: No, I, I I think that's excellent. Um, and that's a great point. I have seen clutch.co before. I, I, I knew I've heard it before, but um, it, it's a great point. Um, I was listening to another podcast, and this was uh, Drew McClellan on his podcast, Build a Better Agency. And he was saying, you know, straight talk like what you're saying oh, you know, agencies, you think you are differentiated in your message, but. Tell me if you've heard this before. Oh, we do good work for great people. We're, you know, creative. We're the fun agency, you know? And and all the things that that you're talking about, it's completely this sameness um, that, that people think they're being different, but they're really not. And so you're right. If people meet you face to face or if they get a referral from someone they know, that's gonna count. But I think the, the real problem is, like you were alluding to, is we're waiting for ha- an infinite number of leads and if we don't get, if we're not completely overwhelmed with leads, we don't cherry pick and we go into uh, a mode where we maybe ignore like those warning signs. How does, you know, that scarcity mindset uh, keep people from moving toward uh, a specific position? And why, why do we have that fear of, of
1: positioning and how does scarcity play into that? So it's a vicious cycle because, uh, like you said, um, I, I meet very, I've met a few freelancers who, who are just kind of swimming in leads and they can cherry pick the ones that they know are going to be good. And, you know, one time out of 10, they'll, they'll be surprised and, oh, that turned out to be a bad client, bad luck, whatever. But that doesn't really make them feel like uh, freelancing is like a prison sentence, right? Um, if you if you can do that cherry picking thing, but most people I know are not, and that's that's what feeds a vicious cycle. Is you start to think of finding great clients as difficult, and something where luck really drives the whole thing. So if you feel like you if you find a great client, you're like, oh my god, how did that happen? Where can I find more of those? And you feel like it was it was a, a sort of random event. You know, luck smiled on you that day. <laughs> So that creates a mindset of there's not a, a repeatable process I can follow to find great clients. And when you're in that mindset, and then I come along and I say, I would like you to consider narrowing down your, your marketing focus, not even what you do day to day, just your marketing focus, so that it's very specific either to a type of client, which we, we would think of as a market vertical or in some cases, about 20% of the time, I think it's, it's wise for some people to focus on a type of problem they solve, like membership sites or e-commerce sites, right? And that's what I'm saying. And I say that to someone who has this mindset of, well, I just get lucky to find a client I don't hate. Now you want me to ex- start saying no to work, the work that's going to put food on my table? And I'm like, yes, that's what I want you to do. <laughs> I can explain why that's usually not a threat. It has to do with the fact that referrals are really the engine by which most people currently find work. But what I want people to do is find a way that, uh, doesn't depend on referrals to get leads and the absolute, and and I believe 99% of the time, the absolute prerequisite for that is to narrow down your focus and become super specific. Um, for most people, frighteningly specific is is how specific they think they need to become so um again it's a vicious cycle because if you're in this mindset of oh work is hard to find you're right it is in in the current way that you're operating as a generalist but when you specialize and you market yourself reasonably effectively it stops becoming so hard to find work and the type of instead of like one out of every 20 clients being a great client you find that wow like three out of four clients are pretty good or even great and i know right now i'm just kind of making, making these hand waving promises to people i think i can uh you know back up all these claims i'm making but um but that's that's the thing that's difficult for a generalist to to really for them to dive into this idea of specialization there are other fears too, but the main fear is I'm gonna starve because you know you want me to just focus on like the twenty percent of all the clients I've ever worked with and just start marketing to them and I'm like, yep, that's right that's what you should do. It will paradoxically um, you know really improve things for most people
0: A lot of people um and I guess what you're saying is you have to step off the cliff and believe that the bridge is going to appear. And a lot of people, you know what I mean? They just have a problem with doing that because like the lizard brain kicks in.
1: Rightly so. <laughs> and,
0: yeah. I, you know, and, and when it comes to, to, to marketing like now, do you think a lot of people look at like maybe the most successful agencies that are out there, like maybe like the top 20? And say, you know, they're kind of generalistic and I'm just going to copy that. And and that also
1: prevents them from positioning down? I think so. I mean, what we see for the most part of those agencies is like we look at their website, right? And we we see whatever message they've put out on their website. And you're right. A lot of times uh, with those big agencies, it is a a sort of general uh, full service agency generalist, you know, we do creative, you know, we do digital kind of message. Right. And uh, that works for them actually (laughs) because uh, they don't need what I'm talking about, which is more of a technique for gaining traction when you're small and starting out. They have, you know, this portfolio of work, they have access. I mean, that's one of the things that they have that you can't see on their website is that they have access. You know, they have relationships by which they get business in the fortune 500 companies, you know, and they, they certainly crawl through, uh, you know, a lot of mud to get those, <laughs> get those Nike contracts yeah. and so forth. I'm not saying it's easy. Like they just waltz in and take somebody out to a dinner and, and land, you know, $5 million worth of work, but th- they the way business development works for them, I believe is fundamentally different than for the solo operator, the self-employed person and the small shop. I really think we need an advantage that can be gained by narrowing down. But uh, yeah, there's other ways to, you know, to do that. And when you're big, you kind of, you operate under different rules, I think.
0: Yeah. And what I think I I hear you saying and, and something that I've really found is what buyers really look at is who can they trust? And maybe with a company that's been around for 10 years, because um, I do know agencies that um, get all their work through referrals, but none of them have been around for less than 10 years, and they work very hard at doing biz dev face-to-face where they go to the places uh, where they're going to meet their ideal buyers. For the people who are you know, newer, like five years or less, and generalist, it's it's a little bit harder because when it comes to trust – they don't. They have not built up the trust that that maybe the more established agencies or the more niched down agencies have built. So when it comes to building trust in the buyer's mind, you know what what sort of things should um, the the solo consultants or the smaller agencies be doing to build trust in an ideal buyer's mind?
1: Well, I think we can separate it into that into two categories like uh, there are ways to go out and do lead generation activities that build no trust at all (laughs) like uh you know a facebook ad doesn't build trust and that's fine that's not really the function of it but it's worth thinking about how much trust is going to be generated through this activity because if you look at the whole other end of the scale you know there's something like giving a talk or doing a class at a meetup or doing a workshop at a conference, those things um, build massive amounts of trust very quickly relative to running a Facebook ad or, you know, um, sending somebody a cold email. So there's that's one part of it is what are the activities that you're doing to generate leads and, and do they have kind of a built-in ability to increase trust because some do, some don't somewhere in the middle. The other sort of category that we can look at is how you basically your, your overall marketing message. If your mar- overall marketing message is I'm a specialist with a track record of working with companies very much like yours or solving the same problem domain over and over again, like membership sites or e-commerce or there's probably a couple others. Um, maybe it's like sophisticated document workflow systems built on top of WordPress. Like that's a, that's a problem that requires specialized knowledge. And so if your overall message is I'm a specialist with a track record in this area, you have an advantage in building trust with people you've never met because of, I got to be honest, I'm still not exactly sure why we trust the brain surgeon more than the generalist, the general practitioner, like in the world of medicine, right? Like, I don't know anymore, but you know, when I was growing up, people would say it's not brain surgery because brain surgery was this thing that was considered sort of the penultimate thing, a challenge in terms of complexity and, and skill required. And so someone was a brain surgeon, you were like, wow, (laughs) you know, they are super trustworthy. Um, and so that's the other category that, uh, of how we think about trust is how do you position yourself? How do you present yourself as, as a specialist or as kind of a jack of all trades? Being a jack of all trades is a lot of fun when you start out, but I don't think it does much to build people's uh, perception that you're trustworthy and that you're, you're worth a premium rate. So... Um, that, I mean, that's the first answer. Maybe we want to dive into that more. Um, the other thing I feel compelled to say is that trust is so weird. Um, you know, we, we trust people for reasons that when you kind of scrutinize it are, are very strange. Uh, if you search for uh, 100 most trusted people in America, you'll find this uh, Reader's Digest survey. And... Um, and it's absolutely dominated by entertainers, which is very strange. You would think, oh, the U.S. Surgeon General would be on there, or and, and the U.S. Surgeon General is on there, but they're like below fifty, I think, in the ranking. I think Tom Hanks might be number one on that list. It's it's just bizarre. So trust, um, you know, trust—that's a whole separate thing we could get into. But trust is weird. <laughs>
0: When it, it's something you touched on a little bit was um, when you build up like owning a word when people think about things, um, and and we see that in our own WordPress community a little bit. Like when I think of SE like general SEO, I think of Rebecca Gill. Or if I think of uh, membership sites, I think of Curtis McHale. You know, there's certain people who have um, you know built up a word that they're associated with either their agency or their consultancy. You know, what kind of steps do you need to take to associate yourself with um,
1: a specific uh, type of of thing? So um, that's a great question. It's a process. Uh, so the first thing is, I mean, maybe that's self-evident, but it's a process and it takes time. You know, we're, we're talking like, to, to move into that kind of position, you know, like I, I'm friends with Curtis, so I know what you're talking about. Uh, it takes y- literally years. So um, that means it takes discipline. It takes uh, sort of making a decision, which when, at the time that you make the decision is kind of terrifying because you don't have a lot of information. You're like, okay, I want to focus on, let's, let's talk about membership sites and say that that's what somebody has decided to focus on. When you uh, try to force yourself to make that decision, part of your mind is going crazy and saying, this is a huge mistake. Uh, There's like three membership sites out there that make money. And how are you going to get all three of those as clients? And which is not true, but this is what part of your mind is telling you you're having this sort of internal debate between two parts of your mind. So there's that going on. And then there's the, um, Like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm a fraud. I've only done three uh, membership sites ever. So how could I focus on this and be credible as, as an expert? And what you don't realize is that, well, that's probably a thousand percent more experience than your clients have had. So you do have a lot of value to offer, even with a relatively limited track record compared to maybe someone who's more of a leader in the field, who's done a couple dozen such sites. Right. So you're From the very get-go, it's, it, there's not a lot of information, and part of your mind is fighting you about making this decision. But let's say you push through it. You decide, OK, I'm going to focus on membership sites. Then you have to start changing your marketing. For some people, that's very painful. That means uh, taking beautiful work out of their portfolio to uh, reinforce in their marketing that they really mean it when they say they're focused on membership sites. Um, this is also a process not doesn't happen overnight. So there's uh, maybe there's pruning a portfolio, maybe there's sort of refashioning your uh, website message. And then there's just the inertia of people don't know you for anything in particular. And that takes time to change. And so you're, um, you're needing to kind of turn a ship that's not a big, you know, massive tanker ship, because you're not an agency with 100 people. Maybe you're just a, a solo person. But still it takes time to to kind of redirect that inertia. And part of that may also be um setting up relations like referral relationships with the membership plugin makers. You know, maybe you kind of go after the big three, uh, you know, um, restrict content pro and whoever the other big two are, right? And and you that takes time. Like at first, you're this nobody who's sending them an email and saying, hey, uh Look, I see you guys have a list of uh, you know preferred consultants, and I focus on membership sites, and would would really like to be on that list. Well, that also doesn't happen overnight, right? So right. you're you're just uh, but here's what is happening: all of these efforts are now aimed at a at a very relative to what you were doing before as a generalist. They're now aimed at a very narrow target, and they start to have more effect than they would have because before. You were like, I'm going to go have beers with a bunch of other freelancers and try to find some work. And, oh, I'm going to go you know, to this other thing. And it was all kind of uh, random and not cohesive. That's what it was for me when I was operating as a generalist. And then all of a sudden now, all your modest efforts to market yourself are aimed at this very narrow target. And they have a cumulative effect that is um, significantly more powerful than what you could have done before. And so maybe you decide you're gonna go on some podcasts and talk about the challenges of setting up a membership site. And you first do that on a podcast where you're with your peers, so it's nice and comfortable. And then you kind of venture out and you're like, I wonder if I can find a podcast that focuses on people who run membership communities, or maybe there's a conference for those people that you could go to. And all of a sudden you feel like completely naked because you're now not surrounded by your peers, and you're actually trying to market yourself directly to your ideal clients for the first time. And you're like, they're going to think I'm a weirdo. I don't really know that much about their business. And then you go there and they you introduce yourself and they put you on a chair and start carrying you around the room because finally they have an expert who's interested in their world. And they have questions and you have answers. So that's kind of what the process looks like. Um, I mean, it looks different for people. Some people would... Uh, not get on a podcast and guest on a podcast if you held a gun to their head. So maybe they need to do something else. Maybe they need to stop writing blog articles that are how to set up your PHP development environment and start writing blog articles that are about the the way in which they've chosen to, to narrow down their focus. So, you know, it's kind of a rant, but it, it just looks different for different people.
0: Definitely. Uh, we're gonna head to our first break and then when we come back, we're gonna be talking more with positioning expert Philip Morgan. See you after the break.
1: Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full no question asked 30-day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from
0: the break and we're talking more with Philip Morgan. Jonathan, do you have something you want to ask
2: Philip? was well, just um, the initial observation. Um, you know, when um, Philip was talking, I think the crux of it is: you know, when you look at these big agencies um, trying to do what they ha- are doing at the present moment, will probably will lead to failure. What came into my mind, as Philip, was a book I read: um, David and Goliath. Golia Underdogs Misfits and the Art of Bat- Battling by Malcolm Gladwell, um, which I think if you're a, a developer, you should go and read actually because um, it describes how underdogs can win, but by winning you can't utilize the techniques of... Person or organ- organisational or country that you're competing with, you've got to find a different mythology. So, I don't know if that was a question or that was a rant actually, Philip, but uh, 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 I don't know if you've read that book and what your observations are at all.
1: I haven't, but now I've <clears throat> got a new book on my to <laughs> read list because it sounds <laughs> It sounds great. It also reminds me, um, it's your, your sort of capsule summary of it reminds me of, uh, the innovators dilemma, which I, I think might be addressing the same thing. You know, what got, got you here won't get you there. That has more to do, I think with how organizations mature and then they become mature and then they start to decline unless they reinvent themselves. But I think it's the same idea that, um, you know, um, mm-hmm a big car manufacturer can spend their way into the mind of the car buying public. Um, we can't do that. We have to use different techniques and it is very much a, you know, the, the companies that kind of command the largest mind share are using stuff that's out of reach for most of us. Um, if there's an audio version of this book, I'll I'll be right on it. Oh, there
2: definitely is. That's why I listen to it. Uh, nice. Otherwise, I don't get the time. Yeah, uh, um, but it, it definitely it touches many of the um, things that you initially um, discussing with John. I feel that going to one of these um, very all embracing digital agencies that can basically do any all elements pr web development design customer relations you name it they can do it trying to make out that you you can do that um actually will lead to you basically going bonkers in the end <laughs> uh, um um so specialization. The only thing I also wanted to ask you is, I I feel that um you need to plan this out a little bit. Um, you need to somehow build some financial buffer, maybe three six months. Have it maybe discuss it if you are with a significant other. Um, really talk to that significant other and explain why you're changing direction. You um, might you might even consider getting a part-time job when you're doing this. That's mind-none and boring, but doesn't demand any mental um, um, stress, basically. Um, you might consider these things before you go down, do some pre-planning. What's your reaction to that?
1: Risk is a huge consideration. Um, whenever I work with people, who are making this transition, like in a coaching capacity, I'll, I'll ask them how much, how long is your runway? You know, how much work do you have blocked in where you don't have to go out and get more work? And that really gets to what you're talking about, because if you've got one month of runway, (laughs) you need to be doing something other than making a, a big strategic change to your business. I think um, I think people can pull it off, but it's, it's risky. And so that's one of the other questions I ask, what's, what's your risk tolerance like? Um, and so absolutely it, it's, uh, it takes time. The The thing that, the, again, the engine or the source of, uh, of momentum for most, uh, solo freelancers is referrals. And I think those referrals in most cases, I think I have seen a few exceptions to this, but in most cases are completely blind to how you're marketing themselves. So somebody needs uh, you know, help with a WordPress site. They get referred to you. They probably don't do that. That person who's been referred to you probably doesn't do a lot of, um, background checking on you. Um, they just are like, great. I've got a problem. Now I have a potential solution. Let me talk to this person so you can make, changes to your marketing without affecting that uh, stream of referrals coming in, except in rare cases. I have seen cases where someone was like, Nope, the, these referrals always really, really scrutinize me before they uh, check me out. So, okay. So there's exceptions to that, but that's what gives a lot of people latitude to make changes is the fact that the fuel that powers their business is referrals. And it's very difficult to shut that off unless you just majorly screw things up. So, uh, overall, you should absolutely think about the risk for sure. But uh, it, you know, it, it varies on a case-by-case basis how quickly you can make changes, or how really how aggressively you can make changes.
2: Oh I think that's a great point Philip because what you're saying is you know change in your marketing if you have referrals coming in it won't end those referrals you're talking about you're talking about what's going to happen in the future aren't you
1: I am and it's it's a bitter pill I think for a lot of WordPress developers to swallow because they think of their site as a way of demonstrating their expertise which to an extent it is you know if you're a WordPress developer and you use a Squarespace site someone's Maybe going to scratch their head and be like, why don't you, you know, why don't you do the thing that you say you're good at for yourself? So if you suggest to a WordPress developer that their site is, um, could go offline for a year and it probably would not uh, affect their business, they would find that very difficult to believe. But I I think in a lot of cases that's true because uh, again, most of the people I work with, if I'm like, how many leads did you get from your website or where do your leads come from? They're like, Oh, I got one over the last year that turned into a client well unless that was a massive client just do the math it's it's you know again you you have a lot of latitude to make changes that i think if you'll just step one step back from your current perspective and look at the big picture most people i think will agree that okay yeah i could do that you're right i have a lot of pride wrapped up in my site but yes i could make some changes there and it probably is not going to kill my business so i'm not saying that's always true think think about it for yourself but uh, I think most people have more freedom to change their marketing than they think they do.
2: The other thing you yep. was oh go on John. Sorry. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. I, I just want to ask this one. You know, something you touched on. Um that, that that some people are are like vetted very deeply and some are like absolutely not. They're just referred. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, the bu- the buyers, the people who are making the buying decision, whether that's like a CEO, marketing manager, business owner, what goes through their mind? How do they make buying decisions? You know, what 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 criteria are they thinking of, either consciously or unconsciously?
1: Well, I think um, I think there are people who know more about this, frankly, than me. But uh, I think there's a couple big factors there. Um, I think they're, they're looking for a, t- a template that already exists in their mind to compare you to. And really what positioning is all about is making sure that cannot happen um, because you occupy a category that has one resident, which is you, your business. So I think that's the first thing they do is they're like, okay, does this person look like the last software developer who in August went dark for a month because they went to Burning Man or, you know, something like that. Right. They're kind of, we we all have this sort of, you know, you, you called it the lizard brain, uh, this kind of risk avoidance system that's really built in at a very deep level to how we think. And so I think that's the first thing is like, is this person going to burn me? Are they going to threaten me? Are they going to harm me? Not like actively, uh, you know, beat you up or anything, but, uh, are they going to flake out? Are they going to disappear? Are they going to do a bad job? So I think that's the first thing we look for is, um, you know, signs that that may happen. I have this theory, which is completely unproven. But uh, earlier, um, John, I think you mentioned, you know, like going to clutch.co and looking at the websites and the content of the typical freelancer or software developers website tends to be kind of all about actually, this is more with creative agencies. It's all about their personality, right? I think what you, what happens when you do that is you create more opportunities for people to think you're weird and flaky and unreliable (laughs) when when you're like talking about your personality a lot. So I like to see people have websites that are focused on demonstrating their understanding of someone's problems and, demonstrating that they can uh, solve those problems really well. So uh, but that's a little bit of a tangent. So how do people decide? I think they, they look for obvious uh, warning signs, obvious red flags basically. And then if they, if they can kind of match you to a template of like, Oh, this looks like a reliable freelancer. Great. You're probably going to get a sales conversation with that, with that prospect. If they have no experience hiring freelancers at all, then I think everybody looks terrifying to them unless you're you know, an expert who's like, again, using a metal, medical analogy, this is not a serious tumor. We do need to remove this, but this is not life-threatening. I've done 500 surgeries like this before. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> it's like if you're coming across like that with this foundation of expertise, I think it's very comforting to, to clients. So it's not a great answer to your question, but um, I think they look for just obvious red flags and they look for expertise and they look for third-party proof that you're, you know, either they look for Chris Lima on your website or whatever sure. saying, you know, this, uh, this person is, is worthy of your trust.
0: Do awards mean anything to clients if you're award-winning? Does
1: that mean anything at all? I don't have any data. I kind of think not. Um, I, I think that more and more, I think this will be more true five, 10 years from now. I think the the level of um, kind of suspicion <laughs> about what people say about themselves online is just going to get higher and higher and higher. And so I think that filter that we have, that's like, that's BS. Who I mean, what even is that award? They could have made that thing in Photoshop. Like, you know, I think that... Suspicion is going to creep up, but, um, I think it's worth something. It's not worth nothing, but, um, let's say that I'm a cosmetic dentist, right? And, um, and I look at your website and I see a testimonial from the, this person I heard speak at the national conference for cosmetic dentists last year, who was a client of yours. That means more than almost anything possibly could. So that's that's what you're competing against, it, it, and and that's sort of to me the penultimate proof that you're a good bet is is someone in in your client's world who's incredibly trusted who said something about you in the form of a testimonial or a case study or what have you. That's why when I you know I do this from time to time, I'll go to Clutch Co. and just kind of scan through the top ten websites and there are two things for me that and i'm not a buyer like i've you know not spent much on freelance services over the years but when i put myself in the mindset of a buyer there's two things i see that i think okay that's real they can't fake that their client list and original thought leadership and i don't mean like posting articles on medium i mean like oh they did some research wow they have surveyed 500 you know companies in in the marketplace and they have this data set that they own and they, they use that in their work. Like that's, those are the two things to me that are just super impressive when I do that kind of thing. Excellent.
2: Jonathan. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, kind of I was just listening so intently there. Uh, um, I, would, uh, I just, do you think though, you know, do you think there's also a tendency that's also driven by clients? Do you think there's some clients? Um, I won't say some names, but I was working with one PR company, and then they, and then they stopped working for me so much because they hired somebody internally, and they then started kind of pushing web development but it was a PR company but they, I spoke to the principal and she and they said that um, it was driven by a lot of their clients wanted a one shop solution so is there kind of um, duality there really of that's what causes it you know you get some organisation that goes into things that maybe they shouldn't really
1: well, I, I do think less sophisticated clients, and, and I, I don't mean that in a, a pejorative, negative, insulting sense. I just mean yeah. uh, they they have less internal capacity to say uh, manage uh, three or four specialized expert companies. Um, so those less sophisticated clients will, I think, rightly so, want to work with more of a full service agency those aren't the only kind of clients out there but i do think that that that's what you find with with clients who they just want to they just want one invoice you know they just want one point of contact and they don't want to have to project manage which is what happens you know let's say a larger company hires a uh you know um just three or four kind of a basket of, of specialist firms they now have to coordinate the efforts of all those companies which is fine if they have that capacity, they'll benefit from doing that. But again, the smaller, less sophisticated companies can't really do that. So um, you can still be specialized, by the way, as a you know as an agency, and still have that sort of full service. Uh, offering so you could specialize on a market vertical. You could yeah. specialize on, um, you know, apparel manufacturers and do marketing for apparel. More likely, I guess, B two B marketing for apparel manufacturers. Let's say, and um, and you could still have a full service offering, but you're still specialized on a market vertical. Yeah. So the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but I think you do bring up a good point, Jonathan, that. Um, that some clients for sure will be like but why can't you do this other thing it's it's all marketing yeah right? that kind of <laughs> thing it? yeah it's that's software
2: yeah that's what you hear isn't it you know um I, I just yeah i think we we're talking the same language here it's just that um, it's a big market so you get all different types of
1: views can't you and um well just in the US i think there's 30 million businesses of different sizes. So um, yeah, it's a big market. (laughs) Every market, except for incredibly niche markets, is a big market. Yeah.
2: Go on, John. Go on, have a question.
0: Yeah, definitely. So when um, when it comes to picking a specialization, what, what are some guidelines that the consultant or a smaller agency should go through to pick their ideal specialization?
1: There are five criteria that I, I encourage people to look at. Um, I may not remember them all off the top of my head, but uh, th- there are specific criteria because one of the things I encourage people to do, um, you know, pilots have checklists, right? because if you're just trying to fly an airplane based on emotion and gut instinct, that probably works some of the time, <laughs> but as, a, as the airplane becomes more complex, that works less and less successfully. So, um, your emotions will be telling you, Oh, I just, gosh, I had this client. I really loved them. Uh, maybe I should just focus on that type of market vertical, right? Or this problem was super interesting to me. I just love, uh, developing a node JS, maybe I can somehow specialize on that. So your emotions will be there, uh, you know, representing even the most logical person will have this. Um, so on the more objective side of things, I would encourage you to think about where do you have really good proof that you're a good bet that you're, um, you have a track record of doing this, that you can produce results that, uh, you know, real people trust you with, with real money. Um, where do you have access because access is, again, I think that's the, for those big agencies. That's really the the fuel that kind of runs their business is their size, momentum, and then their level of access. So, do you have uh, connections within a particular market vertical? That doesn't mean, and none of these one, no one of these factors is the only reason you should choose. But all I think they can help point you in the right direction. So, where do you have access? Um, do you, where do you understand? the the inner workings of a particular type of business because this is a whole another conversation but um, you know there's basically two kinds of marketing there's the marketing that interrupts us sometimes very pleasantly like you know a Super Bowl commercial for example but usually it, those kind of interruption based marketing techniques are really heavily filtered and so the whole idea of content marketing is based on this other category of permission based marketing right which is Seth Godin's term. And permission-based marketing has value that is um, strong enough that we willingly pay attention to the marketing. Even though there's 500 other things we should be paying attention to, we say, okay, I'm going to read this article because I think it's going to help me or I think it has some kind of value to be able to create that kind of marketing. You need to know something about your client's world and not just a little bit. You need to have some, some reasonably good level of understanding So that's the third criteria. How well do you understand um, a particular market vertical or a particular problem domain such that you can make your marketing interesting and compelling and valuable on its own right? And then um, are you interested? (laughs) I mean, are you just do you even care or uh, like for me, I just don't care about sports. I'm not a sports fan. Uh, it could care less. You could give me tickets to the Super Bowl, and I'd be like, "Oh, thanks." Does anybody want these? <laughs> so uh, that would be a bad market vertical for me to focus on because I, I'm just not that interested in it. And I think that personal stuff does really matter. So those are the uh, I probably just named four out of the five. I can't remember the fifth right now. But those are the criteria that I encourage people to think about to bring a little a sense of objectivity to this this. Big decision that they're making
0: no that's awesome it's definitely so uh, another question it's uh, do, when it comes to case studies wh- what sort of things should you be highlighting in case studies?
1: you know there's a kind of standard case study format um, you know the problem, the solution the the result, the outcome, the benefit, that kind of thing. And I do think case studies are a necessary evil, I guess is how I think of them. Um, the way that they're typically done is, is they're written up. And I, um, this wasn't my own idea, but when it was suggested to me, I was like, oh, that's, that's so right on. You should really probably deliver your case studies verbally when you're having a conversation with a client. That's the other thing I've realized. I, I think a little bit. Uh, To my chagrin, (laughs) because I really started out in marketing, being focused on content marketing, which for most people means, you know, written, the written word, articles, web copy, that kind of thing. And um, the more I've realized the power of having a conversation and just being able to look somebody in the eyes and ask the right questions and um, be able to like verbally problem solve with them. It it's just blows away every other form of marketing when it comes to building trust rapidly. So that's probably the ideal format for a lot of people to deliver their case study. in. maybe they have it written down as kind of backup or for those situations where they need to send out a case study. But um, especially again, I'm speaking to people who are not swimming in leads. So people who are swimming in leads need to do stuff like automate their prospect screening and, have people fill out surveys to even get a phone call with them. But people who are kind of starting out and still trying to find how to narrow down their business and where they want to build up expertise, I think they could really benefit from having more conversations with with potential clients. And I say that as an introvert, like I'm a huge introvert, so I, I'm not like wanting to get on the phone just for no reason. But I think having the right kind of productive conversation uh, with a with a prospect I see people use email when they should be talking on the phone. I see people try to use a website when they should be trying to collect an email address and have a conversation over email. So I think uh, that case studies are probably best delivered verbally where you just say, look, let me tell you about this client. So they look a lot like you in, in certain ways. And I'd like to explain what we did with them. But I think that's more powerful than any written case study. Um, and maybe that's a little bit unconventional, but uh, that's what I think about case studies.
0: <laughs> cool. Jonathan, uh, what do you think? Or wrap up the uh, regular podcast at this point?
2: Yeah, I think so, and if Philip's gracious, we'll we're, we're delve a little bit more in some bonus content. How does that sound, Philip? Let's do it. Right, let's do okay. it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, I want to remind everybody that's listening to the podcast, you're watching the YouTube, if, if you're uh, listening on iTunes or podcast player of your choice, go ahead and uh, leave us a, a detailed review that helps surface this show a little bit more, helps people find uh, us more. Our numbers are growing month over month uh, consistently. And we thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to leave a comment. Give us a thumbs up, uh, something like that. Uh, with that, Philip, how do we get a hold of you and uh, – what do you want us to check out of yours?
1: So I, this is different than probably a lot of your guests. Uh, if you want to find out more about me, there's two things they could do. One is, is a demonstration I want you to do to understand the power of positioning. So I've had really one focus for the last two years, which is uh, this: how to help self-employed software developers narrow down. And the word positioning comes up a lot in that. So if you go to Google, type the word Philip, and then type the word positioning, You'll see me pretty much own the entire front page of Google search results, which, you know, it's not SEO magic on my part. I've just, I've just had a sustained singular focus. So that's one way they could learn more. I also have an email uh, course, a free email course that if people would like to check that out, that would be a way to think about it like this. If I'm right, a lot of you are going to have to change how you do things, which is uncomfortable and not fun. But if I'm wrong, you don't have to change a thing. <laughs> you can go find somebody else to get advice about how to get more leads coming in. And and you, just, you won't have to do all the uncomfortable, scary stuff I'm talking about. So check out my email course and find out if I'm right or wrong for you. Uh, that's positioningcrashcourse.com. That's really the best way to kind of go one step deeper into this stuff if it's interesting or if it feels like the right time maybe for some folks to consider that kind of change for their business. Um, So, again, positioningcrashcourse.com, free email course. Uh, That's where I would point people.
2: Excellent. Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Oh, great. Thanks, John. But before that, Twitter about the podcast and about our sponsor, Liquid Web. And uh, as Philip mentioned, um, Chris Lemmer has joined Liquid Web um, on the management to produce really fantastic products for the WordPress community. And we were honored that they chose us as uh, to sponsor the show. And uh, we hope that the relationship will continue for quite a long period, because they are an excellent WordPress specialized hosting provider. How to get hold of me? It's quite simple. Um, The two best methodologies are either Twitter me, at Jonathan Denwood, or you could email me, and I do answer all my email personally, probably not the same day, but I will get round to it. And that's at Jonathan at WP-tonic.com.
0: Yeah, and, and thanks for reminding me of that, Jonathan, as well. If you go to liquidweb.com/slash uh, WordPress, use that coupon code WP-tonic33, you'll get 33% off your first six months. So take advantage of that for sure. Um if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at my website, lockdowndesign.com. Uh, you can get on my emailing list there. You can follow me uh on Twitter, lockdown underscore, or Facebook, uh just lockdown design. Uh for the WP Tonic, we're saying adios, peace out, we out of here.